Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Today, we're unveiling our latest research project, the need for collaborative combat aircraft for disruptive air warfare. This study addresses a critical development effort in today's Air Force. It was authored by Mark Gonzo Gunzinger, retired Air Force Major General Larry Stutz Stutzream, and Bill Sweetman. As most of you know, today our Air Force operates the oldest, smallest, and least ready aircraft inventory in its history. Chronic pilot and maintainer shortfalls compound these challenges. At the same time, threats continue to grow. So given what's at stake, we're in what's called a failures not an option moment. We need to halt the decline in air power capacity while increasing capability to meet real-world demands. Part of that means we need to fully leverage autonomous, uninhabited aircraft. Our latest report on this subject is based on insights that we gathered from an unclassified war game we conducted with Air Force representatives from the operational community, technologists, and force planners, plus experts from industry. We're joined today by the report's lead author, Mark Gunzinger, plus our war game team leads. First, we have our own director of research, retired Major General Larry Stutz Stutzring. Next, Robert Otis Winkler, Vice President, Corporate Development and National Security Programs, Kratos Defense. And adding to this group is Curtis Nerd Wilson, Senior Director, Emergent Missions, General Atomics, Aeronautical Systems. So Gonzo, how about you kick this thing off and give the crowd a, a bit of a background on our presentation? Hey, thank you, General Deptula. So insights in this briefing are from Mitchell War Games and other studies that explored how CCA could help the Air Force to achieve air security in a campaign to defeat Chinese aggression. I'd like to start by thanking Major General Scott Job and Lieutenant General Dale White for kicking off our last war game. Now, these gentlemen are leading the Air Force's effort to define CCA requirements and integrate them into the force. I'll also like to set the tone for our panel, a little bit of context on our report's insights. Now, CCA, they're not just another new capability. They're not just a, another program, but they're an opportunity for the Air Force to fundamentally change its force design and do so in ways that will help it to deter and fight if required to defeat pure aggression. So this highlights uh, a few of the challenges our analyses are addressing. Now, as General Deptula said, the Air Force's air security force is now too small, too old, and simply cannot project enough sensors, jammers, weapons, and other capabilities over long ranges into the highly contested environments that will exist during a pure conflict. And defense budget trends tell us it's simply unreasonable to assume the Air Force, or DOD for that matter, will soon be able to match the PLA aircraft for aircraft, weapon for weapon, ship for ship, and so on, in a Western Pacific fight. Instead, our military must invest in asymmetric capabilities that will disrupt the PLA's operations, impose costs, and create the conditions for mission success. And that's a key reason why the Air Force is developing CCA. So this is a quick description of CCA, but my main point here is there's a growing gap between the supply and demand for Air Force air power. 
And by a growing gap, I mean the service is getting smaller every year because of inadequate budgets, even as global demand for its forces increase. And no other U.S. service can compensate for this shortfall. Yeah, the Navy and Marine Corps, they also have fighter forces, but those forces are mostly dedicated to supporting their service-specific missions, not achieving air superiority for all joint force operations. So, Mitchell studies have focused on informing the development of a family of CCA that can increase the Air Force's combat capacity and do so beginning this decade, as well as the capabilities individual CCA should have and CONOPS for using them in peer conflicts. So here's a few top-level insights that came out of our 2023 war game, which was played by teams of Air Force and industry operators, planners, and technologists. Now, these experts agree that simply growing the Air Force to better fight a mass-on-mass war of attrition, that's, that's yesteryear thinking. A far better approach is to develop capabilities and CONOPS that will disrupt the PLA's operations. And by disruptive, our report is talking about asymmetric capabilities and CONOPS that will cause the PLA's war plans to go red, to erode China's confidence that the attack will succeed to the point where its leaders decide not to pull the trigger. That's the foundation of deterrence, and that's what a family of CCA could help deliver starting in a few years. So, CCA promised to help fill shortfalls in the Air Force's capacity to project affordable mass over long ranges, increase the lethality and survivability of its operations, and improve the resiliency of the service's forward posture, which we should anticipate will be under attack by China. But I'd also like to highlight the text in the blue box on the slide, which says there's a need to break from the mindset that CCA will always operate in support of crewed aircraft. CCA that are properly designed, have the right mission systems, degree of autonomy, could also be used as lead forces to disrupt enemies' air defense operations. So it's also important to understand as the capabilities of CCA increase, so does their cost. More autonomy, more stealth, more mission systems, longer ranges, larger payloads can all add up to more costs, just like any other aircraft. So the secret sauce to developing CCA is to make the right capability, risk, and cost trade-offs that will maximize their combat effectiveness and their cost effectiveness. So just one slide on our, our War Games methodology. We use a classic Blue Force, Red Force interactive approach to stress players and cause them to react to a dynamic threat environment. Now, during the game, we asked three blue teams of experts to independently propose CONOPS and request forces to perform these three air security missions in advance of allied strikes against PLA forces assaulting uh, Taiwan. So asking the teams to work independently gave us a great foundation for comparing results across the three missions, which gave a lot of weight to their insights. And the game also had two major moves. The first move asked the teams to determine CONOPS and forces needed to perform the missions over the first two days of the campaign. And then the second move required them to modify their CONOPS and forces to sustain the fight for air superiority over the next two weeks of the war, plus, of course, adjust to the red team's actions. 
So this slide describes 10 notional CCA that we developed during an earlier Mitchell workshop. And we asked the three blue teams to choose from this list and other available uncrewed and crewed aircraft to build their mission packages. And we also asked the teams to choose forward operating locations to bed down their forces. And this is where it begins to get really interesting. All three of the teams independently proposed to use CCA in ways that would disrupt the PLA's air security operations. So I'm going to show you one example from one of the teams to illustrate that. We tasked this team to plan and conduct fighter sweeps in advance of a U.S. long-range strike pulse, which is also illustrated on the slide. But the highlighted yellow box was the sweep team's designated area for suppressing airborne PLA threats like their J-16 and J-20 fighters, as well as the KJ-500s that are part of their, uh, their kill chains. So the team proposed a two-phase concept that would first use large numbers of CCAS, the lead force, to stimulate threats and begin to attrit them in advance of a second pulse of CCA operating collaboratively with fifth-generation F-22s and F-35s. So here's the sweep team's first phase of operations, which they called their brawler force pulse. The team planned to lodge CCA-5s, which are lower-cost air-to-air missile-carrying UAVs and, and other CCA from bombers, as well as ground locations in Ryukyu's Islands and uh, the Philippines. So these CCA would penetrate their designated operating area, stimulate threats to react in ways that can be detected and the threats located, and then pass targeting information to the team's second wave of forces, and of course, to cause the PLA to waste their weapons, their defenses against uncrewed aircraft instead of crewed aircraft. So the sweep team's second pulse consists of that mix of CCA and 5th gen fighters working collaboratively to, again, suppress air-to-air threats as well as their enablers like Dragon Eye radars on uh, PLA Navy SAGs that were screening the battle space. Weaponized CCA would complement F-22 and F-35 operations in the sense that they would increase sensors and weapons that the Air Force can project into the fight. So, to recap, this team planned a disruptive, two-phase approach to achieve a degree of air superiority that would be needed to support follow-on strike operations against the PLA amphibious assault and, and other targets. And the other two teams came up with similar concepts, two-phase concepts. So here's the major insight. Our teams of experts overwhelmingly chose to use long-range, lower-cost CCA from that menu of 10 notional designs that I, I just showed you. Risk really drove their choices, since they believed that CCA attrition would be pretty high at the start of a conflict with China. Slide. And as the risk began to decrease somewhat as the campaign progressed, the team selected a larger number of more capable CCA-3s, as you can see from the bottom bar chart. They also valued the ability to air launch some CCA from bombers and ground launch them from short runways or even without runways because that would help them create a more distributed posture that would reduce attrition from the Red Team's missile attacks on the Air Force's uh, air bases. But I'd really like to footstop. The teams chose lower-cost CCA because of the potential to offload a great deal of mission risk to them 
and the potential to acquire CCA, those CCA at scale this decade. Again, risk and CONOPS really drove the team's choices, which is another reason why the teams did not select the two non-attributable CCA you see on the slide that uh, cost over $40 million each. So I'll wrap up some recommendations that came out of our war game, and I'd like to footstop once again. These recommendations are based on insights from our experts who participate in our work game and other analyses. They're not made up by Mitchell. First, a CCA force could dramatically change how our Air Force conducts air security operations and other missions, but developing that force will require balancing trade-offs between the capabilities of CCA designs and the costs. Second, experts unanimously agreed that CCA will be additive and complementary capabilities. They're not going to reduce the Air Force's requirements for F-35s and GAD and B-21s. The maximum combat value will be realized by taking full advantage of the attributes that crewed and uncrewed aircraft each bring to the fight. So I'll also footstop the Air Force cannot afford to waste air-to-air weapons in a fight with China, which means that weaponized CCA must have at least enough survivability to reach their weapon launch points. CCAs must also be fielded in the numbers needed for a peer conflict, including attrition reserves, which our current force does not have. And certainly there needs to be much more work completed to determine right operating locations, logistics, and, and other supporting capabilities that are going to be needed to generate CCA sorties at scale in a fight with China. So as CCA designs are iterated over time, experts also recommended the Air Force take advantage of miniaturized munition components, more efficient compact motors, and, and other technologies to develop smaller weapons that would increase the number of targets CCA can attack per sortie. Because more weapons per sortie is another key to rapidly blunting an enemy's offensive. And one last point. CCA could dramatically change air combat operations, but it will not happen if the Air Force is forced to rob money from its other modernization programs to pay for them. And as Secretary Kendall has stressed, a a year-long continuing resolution would delay fielding a CCA force, which frankly we need in the field over the next few years. The risk today is simply too great, and the opportunity to bolster deterrence in the near term is too important to permit that. Thank you, and back to you, General Deptula. Well, thanks, Gonzo. Appreciate that uh, rundown. And um, also uh, appreciated you reminding us <clears throat> the generals, uh, Job and uh, uh, White, took time out of their schedule to provide opening remarks. They really have been a great team uh, in, in developing and working this whole CCA issue. Um, now, before we get into questions, um, I'd also like to give our uh, War Game team leads uh, some time to think about the key insights that they took away from the experience. So, Stutz, why don't we lead off with sure. you? And then we'll go to Otis and Nerd. So over to you. Thank you, boss. Uh, first, I want to compliment Gonzo. Uh, this war game was was fun to do, and it really had the right team, Gonzo, that you put together. And I especially want to thank Mike Dom, uh, who ran the red team, 
there is enough productive tension in the game to, to really stir us up. So let me summarize my task. Our, uh, our team was uh, dedicated to suppressing PLA SAGs that were operating northeast of, uh, of the Taiwan Straits. Now, uh, those SAGs have got the Dragon Eye radar. They've also got the HHQ-9 air to sur uh, surface to air missile. And that missile uh, has got about range we used about 135 nautical miles. So the KJ-500s are involved uh, and uh, to, to really take maximum use of that air defense bubble. So we knew there was a vulnerability to the SAGs in that if we hit it hard, uh, we could take it out of business for quite a bit of time because while they're away, it's tough to uh, rebuild uh, structure on the vessels, so it would probably have to go back to port or at least be taken out of the fight. Uh, so our, our con op was to bring MQ-9 Reapers out on the fringes of the threat to begin uh, uh, the look for the SAGs, locating the SAGs. They were equipped with multi-mode maritime radars. Uh, and then we sent in CCA-10. Now CCA-10 was uh, configured for electronic warfare. So the thought was we would stimulate at the front end of our pulse, we would stimulate the Dragon Eye and other radars such that we could further locate them. And that information would be sent back to help uh, right behind, closely behind, in the second part of that phase, uh, the F-35s and uh, other CCAs that were being brought to bear. Now we also used the very, uh, largely uh, larger inventory and low-cost CCA-5 to uh, get in there and act uh, as decoys, also uh, have some warheads on them, but simply to force the uh, SAGs to honor all aircraft that were coming upon them. Now, later, in conjunction with the manned aircraft, the F-35s, we used a LRASM-equipped CCA that then did a multi-axis attack on the SAG. We felt that quantity had a quality in its, in its own right. And so we would come and do as much as we could in terms of axis attack on that SAG. Um, now, one of the concerns we had, highlights of this, was all about comms, and we know this, that uh, we're gonna be fighting in a disrupted or denied comms environment. So we also used CCAs, the low-cost CCAs, as comm nodes to try to bring back as much information to other CCAs that were equipped to take that data and also the manned aircraft. Uh, I wanna make it clear that we, didn't not, we did not use the more exquisite, uh, exquisite CCAs, uh, the expensive ones. We didn't use them because they were both low in quantity and also expensive. That wasn't in our calculus. It just turned out using the lower cost CCAs to offload risk from the manned aircraft to the CCA it just made a lot more sense in the CONOP that we developed. Um, and uh, so those two things stand out to me as being really insights. Uh, and I'll say one last thing, that we were worked pretty much the last minute and uh, it was pretty surprising when it turned out that without collaborating all three groups had a similar approach uh, to using the CCAs. Otis, I'll pass it to you. Thanks, I'll echo one, the, the idea of the war game itself, the way that the war game was set up was, was really remarkable. It, it mirrors very closely 
to the things the operational planners in the Joint Staff and in the Air Force are dealing with today. And the fact that we had operators as well as operational planners that are doing this today involved in, and actually leading uh, our planning efforts for this war game, I thought provided some really significant insights with, with where things went. Our uh, team was responsible for doing both OCA uh, and DCA across uh, the entire move period. So what, one of the big takeaways was our ability to position uh, the, the CCAs inside of the first island chain because what that allowed us to do is to provide DCA capability on call as opposed to trying to synchronize our DCA efforts with the pulsed operations that were going on with, with the OCA. So because we could distribute ourselves inside that first island chain, launch as required, and then recover as required and turn the aircraft at a faster time than the enemy could, and the it really disrupted the Chinese scheme of maneuver, and, uh, and during adjudication, right, it paid big dividends for us. The fact that uh, we also coupled our, for, within the first island chain with uh, either very, very short runways or even not using runways at all, coupled with the air launch capability that our OCA could bring forward at the same time. Really couple, those two things together provided a great synergy, again, uh, to really dismantle uh, the OCA and DCA capabilities of, of the adversary. Another thing that, that really struck me was the use, and we talked, Gonzo's already talked about it a little bit, but the use of, of CCAs on their own and in conjunction with, uh, with manned aircraft added a, la a layer of survivability that, that quite frankly surprised me. And, and the fact that not only did it make the survivability of the CCAs more capable, but it also made the survivability of the manned aircraft uh, way more, way better than what we would have seen when they were going off on, on their own. And the final one yeah. that my biggest, my big takeaway was, was the cost, right? We, we gave them, as team leads, we gave the, a force design that allowed the, the Air Force operators and, and planners to pick what they wanted, right? So they could have picked uh, half the cost of an F-35 with some really significant capability, or they could pick a lower cost uh, that has distributed capability all of them across all the teams, uh, but in, I'll speak for my team. In particular, we, they gra we gravitated towards a lower cost uh, across the board uh, capability, and one that focused on less than $10 million. Right? They had the ability to go 40 to 60 if they needed to, but, but we didn't utilize any of those. Right. Right? And we right. utilized, really focused around that $10 million point. I think that's, the price is less important, 10 or 11 or 15 or whatever, but but the fact of a lower cost to get us that affordable mass, put the affordable and affordable mass, was a huge takeaway for me, and I think it's something that uh, we'll see going forward. Yeah, well said. Okay, so <clears throat> I'd really like to thank Mitchell for putting together such a great team uh, for us. Uh, you know, we had a uh, swath from the entire enterprise that ranged from fifth gen fighter pilots to fourth gen fighter pilots to RPA pilots like myself, industry, you know, AI experts industry airframe experts, uh, mission systems experts. Um, we had maintainers, logisticians, even Space Force uh, were all represented uh, in, in my group specifically, but I know that every other group had just a, a huge breadth of, of, uh, of experience. So uh, furthermore, uh, I really wanna congratulate Mike Tom for making everyone go pale uh, with the red team briefing on how complex and uh, 
challenging uh, this threat is going to be uh, for this particular scenario. Um, not just in the air domain, but across multiple domains. So, uh, you know, at, with that in mind, after the red team briefing, uh, all of the, the group collectively came together and, you know, just kind of sat down and said, wow, this is a, this is a really challenging problem. And the, the survivability uh, in, that, uh, in this particular scenario is going to be very challenged. Uh, therefore, uh, they took it upon themselves to de-risk you know, the manned assets as much as possible. Right? And that's the reason why you see such a huge uh, reliance on, these, on the CCAs in their various forms. Furthermore, the fact that uh, you know, the red team said there's going to be 300 or so uh, PLA airborne assets uh, operating uh, during uh, any given uh, pulse, uh, for example, during these operations. And uh, not only that, uh, you're, you have the SAGs to deal with as well as these multi-domain threats. So our uh, mission was uh, the sweep mission, and that's to attrit the PLA fighter force as well as uh, break down the long-range kill chain, meaning we have to target the KJ-500 and other uh, surface uh, assets. So in order for us to be successful, uh, our, uh, our, our group took it upon ourselves to, like I said, de-risk the manned fighter platforms as well as the HAVAs that are supporting them uh, and uh, rely upon uh, very low-cost, uh, high-quantity, scalable assets. Um, and not only were they concerned about you know, the, the, the uh, manned assets, but they're concerned about the cost, right? We can't send uh, all of our uh, you know, 30 plus million dollar aircraft on the first wave because the attrition rate is going to be so high that we're not going to have anything left to, uh, to, uh, to use uh, in the next wave. So they chose the, uh, the, the CCA-5 in this uh, example in the, in the quantity of hundreds uh, per, uh, per pulse. So uh, it was very interesting to see uh, how those assets were, were able to go in and disrupt uh, not only the, the, uh, the high-end fighter for, uh, formations of the PLA, but uh, in, in most cases, as we saw in the red team debrief, uh, a trit enough of the, uh, the, the AWACS or the KJ-500 capability to break down the long-range kill chain in order to uh, pave the way for the, uh, uh, the exquisite pulse, which was then paired with all of the CCA, uh, the higher-end CCAs and the higher-end man fighters, uh, which were ultimately successful. So uh, once again, uh, can't, uh, can't say enough how much I appreciate Mitchell uh, for putting this together for us. Well, thanks very much, <coughs> all of you. Uh, let's jump into some uh, questions now. Uh, and Gonzo, let me start with you. While it's not pleasant to, uh, to state, the fact of the matter is the Air Force lacks the capacity that it needs to meet the demands of the, Nash, the current national defense strategy. Uh, in a previous report, we discussed the imperative for pursuing capabilities that will allow the Air Force and provide it with the affordable mass that it needs to defeat Chinese aggression. Um, could you summarize that imperative uh, and then explain how the war game spotlighted the potential of CCA to provide that kind of affordable mass? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first, the affordable potential of CCA is partially because they do not need to be designed for 30-year life cycles. Uh, that can drive significant cost savings. That's, that's common sense, and as uh, you, mentioned, General Deptua, we've written about munitions that will help give the Air Force the affordable mass it needs. So I'm going to mention a few things that apply both to munitions and CCA. The first one is there is a need to determine the right mix of penetrating standoff aircraft and munitions to deliver. Both are needed, but penetrating or stand-in aircraft 
crude or uncrude, have distinct advantages. Like they're more effective against uh, air and service, including uh, uh, sea-based uh, moving targets. Plus, appropriately equipped stand-in platforms can have uh, the ability to complete their own kill chains organically, which can really reduce strain on long-range communications and uh, ISR networks that are going to be under attack by an adversary. But here's something that uh, you alluded to, and that is that you have to look at this question from a Red's perspective as well. An all-standoff force presents a far more of a single-dimension threat to defend against compared to a stand-in uncrewed and crewed force. Uh, is an inbound threat, for example, from a red perspective, is that an F-22, an F-35, a CCA? Uh, is it jammers? Is it going to kill me? Does it have weapons? Is it just a sensor? I'm not sure. I'm going to treat it as a threat, and I'm going to respond uh, appropriately, and I'm going to expend some of my defenses to defend against it. So creating that ambiguity is key to understand how, from a red perspective, costs would be imposed on them. And that's why I think affordable mass is a great term, but uh, frankly, a better term uh, might capture the point about uh, imposing costs as well. You have to look at it both from the blue and the red perspective. Yeah. Now, those are great points, Gonzo. Um, uh, appreciate making those uh, distinctions. Now, uh, Otis, you kind of alluded to this in your comments. We need to remember that our war game uh, participants were a, a very operational and tech savvy group. But when we talk about changing the Air Force's force design, uh, big transformational ideas are often met with skepticism in OSD and on uh, Capitol Hill. And you've got a lot of experience in, uh, in both of those areas. So how can the Air Force prepare itself to best communicate the value that CCA bring to the equation to those key audiences? Sure, so I'll start with Congress, because I really think that uh, by the time that uh, the budget request, presidential budget request comes over to the Hill, right, you've at least gotten through OSDs, and, and, and they've hit a partial, I believe, button on it. Right? And then they allow Congress then to, to weigh in. And so Congress, I think, is key. And I think that what you end up with, the key to Congress is that they have to see a progression in capability. They can't just take a leap of faith for force design and move from, well, we're gonna start divesting these aircraft in the hopes of getting something in, in the future. And we've seen that with JSTARS, we've seen that with the RQ-4, right? We've seen that with the F-15 divestment or attempted divestment and then stoppage, right? And even the A-10, right? It, we need to, for Congress, they need to see a capacity issue, and then they need to see a programmatic uh, movement forward so they're not just jumping uh, on the bandwagon. And so what that really means for us is a heel-to-toe kind of replacement. Right now, uh, all the studies show, uh, multiple four or five studies show for just fighter aircraft, that you need about, the Air Force needs about 2,000 fighter aircraft uh, in their inventory as a minimum and optimally, in the 2022 NDAA, it calls for 2,500 as, a, as an objective force. Uh, as the Air Force starts divesting aircraft, they're slowly moving towards right about 1,500 across the fight deck. And so we're going to have to have these affordable CCAs in order to fill that gap. 
the only way that you're going to be allowed to start divesting is to get these things out in the field, to get them flying, and to show programmatically that it can get done in an affordable way. One of the things that struck me at the beginning of, of this war game was when AFRL stood up and said, hey, we have proven that we can get these aircraft for $600 a pound. I think most of, the, of your audience and everybody at this table knows that, shockingly, we buy aircraft almost by the pound. Or There's a direct correlation between the price we pay for the aircraft and how big and heavy that they are. For manned fighters, it's about, in, modern, in current dollars, it's about $4,000 a pound. And AFRL has proven out that you can do this for $600. So, so that fundamentally changes the cost equation for these aircraft. It's been proven out. So at the, as long as the Air Force maintains that kind of cost structure, right, Congress will be uh, hit the I believe button there. And then it's a matter of producing these things, getting them out to the end of the field before we start taking a risky uh, change in our overall force design. Yeah, it's an excellent set of, <clears throat> set of points. So appreciate this. Now, kind of carrying on to that, that theme, um, let's get to the lower cost potential for CCA designs. Um, this is very interesting because a force of CCAs used in ways that Gonzo described in his presentation means that the Air Force has to acquire them in significant numbers. Uh, so Gonzo, can you speak to the CCA design trade-offs to ensure that these aircraft are both combat effective as well as cost effective? Sure. I'd like to clarify the bar charts in our, our briefing that you saw. Uh, that was for one day. That was the forces they requested for one day. Uh, and they use CCA in the hundreds. So we're not talking about CCA inventories that are gonna be in the tens, the twenties, the hundreds. We're talking about in the thousands. That might, means the Air Force must be able to buy them at that scale, which is going to drive the need for affordability. So as I also said, uh, more stealth, more range, larger payloads, more sensors, mission systems, so forth, that can drive up costs. So the key is to understand what kind of trade-offs to make so you have affordable systems, you can buy at scale, and yet they are combat credible. Uh, something that happened during our first workshop, General Deptua, was teams, when they were designing those 10 notional CCA, they said, well, we want exquisite autonomy on all of them. That had changed. A year later, when we did our war game, we said, you know, we now know enough about autonomy, so we need just enough autonomy on those aircraft so they can accomplish their missions. We don't need exquisite of all of them. The same applies for uh, stealth, low observability. The same applies. Not every CCA will need to be VLO, just enough to accomplish their missions. So again, the key is to understand these trade-offs and make the right choices between mission risk capabilities and costs. Unit costs that are too high means the Air Force won't be able to buy enough of them. But again, I'll go back to the previous point I made. Affordable is more than unit cost. You must factor in the potential for CCA to impose costs, to reduce the attrition of fighters and their pilots and so on. So I think maybe affordable mass should really be cost-effective mass. Yeah, I, quite frankly, <laughs> and I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but that's something that, as you all know, I wholeheartedly agree. Because what's, you know, who, who defines what affordable is? It, it goes back to the whole issue of cost per effect. Right. <clears throat> and that's what we ought to be looking at. 
<coughs> Excuse me. So, Otis and Nerd, you're both experienced operators, and you're great team leaders during the war game. Plus, you bring industry perspective now uh, to the equation. So, just this issue of cost that we were talking about, um, there are a lot of people out there that are skeptical about, you know, quote, affordability. So, do you see, or what do you see in the context of advanced technologies that may be able to help us bring down the cost curve when it comes to collaborative combat aircraft? So I'll start. So I think fundamentally, you have to come at this from the design for the fact that it's attributable. That cost number that I threw out there, the $4,000 for a manned fighter, that's because we built in, we build in a ton of redundancy, right? We build in the thing to last for 10,000, happily enough, for 10,000 hours, or, or quite frankly, for the B-52 for 100 years. Right? <laughs> which you won't need to accept that it, you can accept more risk with a tritable aircraft. If you design it like a manned aircraft and shouldn't try to squeeze cost out of it, you run into a very, very, very d difficult problem. And you end up with things like the MQ-25, which is very expensive, right, for the role that it's doing, about $125 million in accordance with the 2024 budget request. Because it's built like, I'll argue at least, it's built like a manned aircraft. If you build it, to be attributable, right? you can have less redundant. You know, the F-16 has a quad-redundant flight control system, which, which is outstanding. It's been fantastic it's the world over for the capability it provides for manned aircraft. Right? But potentially that, that may be over-redundant for something that you're probably going to use for three to four missions, and you'll accept the fact that if it doesn't come back, as long as, and this is the really key part, as long as it gets the mission accomplished. Right? So you have to have the affordability well, affordability becomes irrelevant if it can't do the mission. Right? Right. Then it's just a brick that's sitting on the runway or sitting in the, the, the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And so one of the discussions we had in our team was what, what is good enough, right? What would allow you to get to accomplish the mission, right? Is it, is it for an air-to-air -air, uh, capable? Is it you can't have it hit, shot, get shot down with missiles still on it because we just don't have the weapons depth we haven't bought the weapons necessarily in order to, to get this thing accomplished by dropping missiles in the ocean. So it has to be able to accomplish the mission, and we'd like it back so we can turn it and do it again. So looking at it from that eye, I think you can pull out, fundamentally design it with cost as a technology, as opposed to trying to squeeze cost out of it later. Oh, very good, nerd. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the key delineator is, do we, do we really expect it to come back or to get it back or not, right? And that drives all the design trades, such as you know, landing gear or some sort of recovery system. Uh, and all the way down to the chip level, uh, I was just having a, a meeting with a, a vendor uh, last week, you know, where, where they designed uh, you know, chips and avionics boards and all that stuff. And they, they said, well, how long do you need this to last? Because if it only needs to last 30 minutes of processing load, then you know, before it melts or, you know, otherwise is unserviceable, then the cost goes, you know, surprisingly goes dramatically down, right? Uh, and if, but if you need it back and you need this thing to last thousands of hours, as Otis said, uh, you know, now we, now we have to look into liquid cooling and higher, higher you know, grade materials, et cetera. So, um, you know, another, another key point uh, is, uh, you know, the, the policy, and, and Otis touched on this, is, you know, if we are designing these to be collaborative combat aircraft uh, by aircraft standards, uh, then you know that that uh, levies a whole different uh, 
list of airworthiness and testing requirements uh, that are, uh, as well as policy considerations for the autonomy and the AI, et cetera. Uh, but if, if you were to now couch something that you know is going to be attributable against, you know, for example, a weapons um, uh, policy and or uh, airworthiness certification, uh, then you, you fast track a lot of, uh, or usurp a lot of those, uh, those requirements. And then lastly, what I'll say is, uh, we, we were very fortunate to have uh, an A4 representative, so a maintainer in our, in our group. And, you know, he, he made the very astute uh, observation that, that kind of was lost on a lot of pretty much everyone else. He said, you know, this, these things look like they're, they're pretty like, low to the ground. Uh, and they're, they're, they're small and, and it's, it's gonna be hard to get up underneath there. I mean, is a standard weapons jammer gonna work with this thing? And everyone kind of took back and said, yeah. probably not. So now, uh, you know, what he insinuated was now we have a whole new ground support equipment requirement uh, that, that could be levied against these things, which is just going to do nothing but drive cost further and further up and require bespoke equipment at all these austere locations. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the takeaway from that was, you know, maybe we should look at what equipment's already out there on these various FAR, or, you know, FARPs, uh, forward operating locations out there in the, uh, the Pacific and see what we can use, uh, reuse, and design to those uh, that existing equipment so that we don't have to levy an entire uh, GSE bill, uh, as well as uh, sparing. Uh, you know, so the, the A4 talked about sparing. What are we gonna do uh, if these are one-time use and one of them comes back and it's all banged up? Can I just cannibalize, assume that I'm gonna cannibalize that or I'm gonna have to have a spares kit out here? The, all of those considerations you know, compound against each other. Uh, and but drive up the costs and, and uh, affect the affordability of this uh, these aircraft. So all things need to be considered in the requirements. Yeah, thank you for that. Now, Stutz originally uh, CCAs were referred to as loyal wingmen, uh, and that created an image uh, of you know one that still kind of hangs around today of direct support for a particular um, other aircraft, but. As the war game showed, the experts and participants figured out that we can use these things for a lot of different mission sets beyond directly assisting, uh, you know, uh, an inhabited aircraft. Yeah. Could you elaborate a bit on the, you what, what your what your yeah. team's views were? You bet. Well, the old guys like you and I, you know, well, easy and science <laughs> fiction and movies like the recent Top Gun too. You know, you see a lot of this type of flying, you know, wingmen on the wing, close together. These young bucks over here to your right, you know, they're, they're of a different age. Notice it, not young. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Fair enough. <laughs> but, but where you have, uh, for example, our F-22s, they, they operate as teams, but they're not, they're, they're like this. They're in different uh, lanes, different zones. They don't see each other. So this notion of a loyal wingman, and Mitchell Institute actually had a presentation about uh, four or five years ago, where the thinking was really entrenched in this very close tie. Uh, now, there may be a tether, and we hope in certain situations there's, there's a tether of some sort to where the manned aircraft is controlling, directing, and using that CCA. It's collaborative. But what we saw across, I think, all three teams is that, especially in the uh, 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 nerds team, which had that brawler phase. I mean, unleash these CCAs. The more automation or autonomy, great. We want them to go out there, cause disruption. And I don't care where they come from. We all launched from 
Japan, islands, Philippines, do we want to classically rally these all together in some force package, choo-choo train that goes in? No, we want multi-axis, we want surprise. So the notion of a loyal wingman vice these other types of dimensions of how CCAs can be used very independently and at different degrees tethered to a manned aircraft. That's a powerful uh, spectrum of uses for CCAs. That's very good. I, and I, I'll be quick, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, way back when, when the F-15 was first introduced, 1977-78 timeframe operationally, there were several of us who didn't want to fly the traditional clothes, but to spread out 20, 30 miles apart. Yeah. But we didn't have an operationalized data link system like we have today that enabled to do, us to do that. Yeah. And the old yeah. farts then forced us back into, <laughs> into visual formations, yes. but, I, but I digress. <laughs> um, one for uh, Otis and Nerd, uh, the, Menu of CCA designs available to the war game teams uh, gave you all options for launching and recovering the aircraft from shorter runways and even without runways at all. Um, so where did the teams gravitate, gravitate Tate to uh, for their preferred launch and recovery modes? Any observations? Yeah, I, I was taken back a little bit in this because I, I really think that it was fundamental to my team's operational design and the fact that one, it was a cost-imposing cost strategy on the enemy to be able to spread out and to use roads or even no runways at all, right? Or to use air-launched capability to be able to come in and recover, even the air-launched, to recover at these austere locations. Because what it does is it's, it's intuitively, it spreads out the number of targets that the enemy has to hit. And so uh, now the enemy is spending its ballistic missiles to attack these austere locations as well as having to attack the, the main operating bases. And so that was one aspect of it, the cost imposition. The second aspect of it was where we positioned the aircraft inside that first island chain in, in non-traditional locations, right? uh, but still using the ACE concept. It, allow, it allows us to launch at our time, our desired, to get in the middle of the pulsed operations that the enemy is doing. And it completely disrupted their OCA and their DCA capability, uh, at least in the adjudication for our team, uh, and allowed us to, to make both our DCA significantly more lethal and, and our OCA pulsed operations, right? one, be mission successful, and then two, increase the survivability twofold. Very good. Yeah. So real quick, the uh, one uh, interesting takeaway after the first phase, and we came back and we debriefed, Mike Tom got up there and said, all right, here's the attrition of, you know, here's, the, here's how you did, right? And here's your attrition numbers across all your different uh, uh, assets. And uh, by the way, 40% uh, of your attrition was on the ground, was on the ramp, aircraft that you didn't use that you were saving, uh, putting in reserve because the, the, the PRC, the PLA are coming for you. They're not just sitting back in some defensive posture waiting for, you, for us to, to bang them up. They're coming to attrit our forces on the ground before they even uh, get a chance to fight. Um, so that drove the need for further and further standoff bases as well as these austere uh, ground launch locations uh, and, and or aircraft uh, that were able to carry and air launch uh, these aircraft in from very uh, long ranges away. So that was something that was very, um, changed my perception at least uh, in the game. Um, well, very good. Well, we're we're kind of at that point that I do want to save some time for uh, 
the session uh, for the audience uh, questions and answers. I think everyone here is pretty familiar. You know the drill. Um, when you call, when I call on you, unmute your mic, state your name and affiliation. Or I had a bunch of questions already here through chat, so I think that's the way we'll start. Um, let me start with uh, Mike um, Zygan. Uh, and this was sort of implied already in the remarks that you made, but more directly, his, Mike's question is, were logistics impacts of the various approaches considered by the participants? For example, um, when you ask for high numbers of CCA5. Anybody? I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. Um, obviously, in one or two war games and workshops, you can't address everything. And that was a major recommendation report much more work needs to go into determining what kind of posture we need along the first island chain, maybe the second island chain for CCA as well as crewed aircraft, ACE concept, supporting logistics. So we, the Air Force can sustain the tempo of sorting generations the CCA is going to be required to generate this affordable mass. A lot of work still needs to be done. But something else came out, it's in the report, we haven't addressed it yet, and that is, think about CCA. You don't need to fly CCA every day to train pilots because they're uninhabited, as General Dabdullah says. So you might be able to containerize these and pre-position them, just like other material for in different operating locations, and move them around by truck if necessary, and then call on them, fly in uh, some soft or other forces to, uh, to operate and launch, and if necessary, recover them. But that's all, again, going to be logistics dependent. So there was some exploration of that uh, pre-positioning concept. I think that it, that in itself would be worth a, a follow-on analysis. If, if I may add. Oh, yeah. So, Bull, I, I, we looked at it, right? And, and this, the idea that can you survive inside the first island chain? And it was fascinating to me that uh, in the same way that, that people who aren't understanding of air power assume that the A2AD environment is this bubble that you can't penetrate at all, right? Great point. The services, other services besides the United States Air Force, some of which are participated in the war game, their basic scheme of maneuver, their, their overall operational design for the Indo-Pacific is to operate inside the first island chain continuously by moving around and working in these austere locations. And so one of our big takeaways was, yes, we have to go through the logistics aspects of this, right? And this is, that is worthy of its own separate war game. But from a past muster, does this actually work? Where can we survive inside the first island chain? It was we, we did investigate that, and it was an unequivocal yes. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, here's one uh, from the Air and Space Forces Association's uh, sort of senior uh, uh, reporter and writer, John Turpak. Um, was there an organizational concept? used in these war games that paired CCAs with piloted aircraft, or were they separate units, separately commanded, with less tactical cooperation? Yeah, I'll, I'll go, let me grab that, because this was, we had a huge discussion on this in terms of this spectrum I'm talking about. Uh, unlike, say, uh, Otis and Nerd's phased, very distinctively phased, uh, CCAs out there first. Ours was close together. We still had in the lead our CCAs, but the F-35s indeed uh, were, were collaborating with the CCAs who were out there sensing, detecting, sending back information, 
and then the coordinated attack, which was under the control of the F-35 pilot. I'll uh, add one thing, uh, two things actually, very quickly. Uh, during our very first uh, workshop, with really a, a mini war game, we talked about the need to uh, build future units that consist of both CCA and fighters, crewed fighters, bombers, maybe even tankers for that matter, so they can operate every day like they're going to fight. So they can develop the tactics, techniques, procedures, economics, and so forth to do that. In employment though, CCAs do not need to be co-located with fighter units or bomber units for that matter. And I don't think any of our, our teams did that. Uh, the secret there is you can launch a CCA from uh, highly, uh, very dispersed posture and then join up in flight if necessary with crewed aircraft to accomplish this mission and then recover at their, their separate bases. Yeah, um, again, that's worthy of <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, exploration on its own. I mean, here's one from Captain uh, Jonathan uh, Chua from Air Combat Command Combat Data and AI Office. How will AI affect the decision calculus and how can we best use counter AI to combat the PLA? Now, this is a little bit beyond the CCA topic, but it, it's a great question. Anyone care? So I, yeah, I think I could take that one. The, uh, you know, we had a lot of discussion about uh, the, the, the relationship between artificial intelligence or, or, or higher levels of autonomy and assured C2 or JAD C2. You know, in the war game, we were, we were told that you know, in the future, JAD C2 uh, is, is going to be available. You're going to have some level of connectivity. Um, and you know, the, it really is a, a, an interrelation, right? So you, on one hand, you have all of the investment and all of the technology that's going into, uh, into artificial intelligence, you know, and, and that's kind of turned into a buzzword, but really the, the autom automization of a beyond visual range, you know, shot effectively uh, using uh, aircraft to greatly extend our, our, our reach. Uh, but on the other hand, you have a lot of investment through JADC2 into the you know, assured command and control of these aircraft. So you know, that, that would say that at some level, I can guarantee that there's going to be a, a data link or some sort of link of status report back and some sort of command function to that aircraft. So um, they offset each other. Right? If I have assured C2, that I don't necessarily need full AI. If I have full AI, I don't necessarily need a short C2, right? And they assess my postulation in this. So um, both of, of the, the brawler phase was completely unmanned uh, and, and assumed that we were operating in an autonomous fashion and these, air, these aircraft were behaving as weapons and were engaging the enemy uh, uh, without much human interaction at all. The, the exquisite phase was intended to be uh, more of a collaborative uh, uh, aircraft with the fifth gen uh, to where these aircraft were under the command of a, a direct fighter formation. So, um, you know, the, the answer is really both uh, AI and, and autonomy, autonomy and uh, command yeah. and control. Hey, uh, let me add to that, that when you talk about what we did, you know, proving out this, these concepts, there's something that needs to start now if it hasn't already started. That is the policy associated with the use of AI. Um, if you think about it, uh, in the brawler phase uh, that, that NERD used, I mean, we're talking about having the liberty to not have some human in the loop or on the loop. I mean, the ultimate value of the CCA that is operating without a tether to get out there, detect, maybe destroy, be a decoy, whatever it is, 
you, if, if you are going to employ lethal force, we have to think about changing the ROE we have today, which is very controlling of human on the loop or, or in the loop. So that policy is out, outside the hands of the United States Air Force. That's a, a thing for OSD to pick up and then work with Congress. There's gotta be an understanding that if the, we are operating in a disrupted comm environment, the utility of CCA is reduced. I mean, they win because we're restricted from ROE in some way from really having some degree during that fight of more liberty to employ the CCA without you know, humans in the loop. I, that's an excellent point. Again, uh, much broader subject, uh, but one that uh, we are writing about. Um, and Captain Chua, we didn't get to the second part of your question there on how to use counter AI to combat the PLA, but send me an email and, and we'll discuss that uh, as a potential study area forward. Here's one from Steve Doucette. What do you think or the priority will be by the Air Force to develop CCA to be used in an ISR role? Clearly your focus was on weapons employment, but any discussion on ISR applicability? Yeah, we did talk a, quite a bit in the panel about weaponized CCA. The report is much broader. It talks about using CCAs as uh, uh, sensors, active and passive sensors that could range out in front of other CCA as well as uh, inhabited aircraft to detect threats, uh, report back, and so forth. Jammers, uh, electronic warfare aircraft, and, and maybe even in future cyber, uh, we're not sure. The future of CCA is really bright. And investigating and understanding how they can contribute all these different mission areas together as a cohesive whole, as a collaborative force, uh, that's gonna yield the, the full power of CCA. So it's not just weaponized CCA. I didn't wanna leave anyone with that impression. It's all those other functions that they can perform to again, reduce risk and create decisive effects. Yeah, our, our group said E7s need CCAs too. Right? Absolutely. Uh, because just like we're going after the, the KJ500, you know, we can expect PLAF to come after our E7s. So, you know, we need to uh, increase uh, uh, the complexity of their targeting matrix, but also distribute and disaggregate uh, the E7 effects uh, through through some sort of uh, ISR or, you know, C2 type aircraft. You know, that's a critical point because, as we all know, um, uh, PLA Air Force has specifically designed weapons to go after our high value assets like that. Um, here's one from Andrew uh, Shirtliff. Did the war game teams look at the cost per effect, not just at the platform level, but at the aggregate level when taking into account the thousands of lower cost CCAs required in the war game scenario? Great question. Um, you know, I wish CAPE would take that kind of approach more often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'll handle this uh, very, very briefly. Um, I'm not aware of a great deal of government analysis on that. That is critical, absolutely important. Uh, the tendency of DOD, uh, green eye shade people, is to look at program costs, sustainment costs, equipment costs, uh, and so forth, and not the cost effectiveness of these uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, we, we saw that in some other new platforms that are just beginning to join the force. Uh, 
cost of flying hours compared to this against that platform is better. So we should, well, wait a minute. What about their effectiveness in warfare? What about their cost effectiveness? Oh, well, we didn't look at that. Uh, I've actually heard those words come out of Cape. I'm not throwing stones. My point is the, uh, the question is exactly right. We've got to take a look at that just as much as we do unit costs. And I think that for the, for the war game itself, although we didn't do a, a direct analytical analysis of cost per effect, right. which should be done, uh, but we did look at intuitively, can the mission get accomplished by using this type of asset? Or do we have to move to a different type of asset? And, and by doing that, I think what we, we discovered is not only did the CCAs, all the CCAs that were used, contribute to the cost of effect of themselves, but actually increase the cost of effect across the entire post operation or the mission sets that were being done. Um, I know we've come to the end of our time, but th there are some great questions here. Um, you know, lightning round, real quick, here's one from Philip Gross. How do you consider command and control options of these collaborative combat aircraft? At the mission management level, tethered to inhabited aircraft, or at the battle management function level? Uh, what kind of dynamic shifts were involved from one mode to another? Yeah, this, uh, this came up in the game in the side chat. We didn't look at that specifically, uh, but, but uh, F-35 pilot gets up and says, uh, man, you know, the way we do business today, we marshal aircraft, we have an ATO, things are timed in terms of having the, the tankers ready to go and, and refuel. There needs to be an analysis, and that's implied from this game, analysis of how we do business today in terms of marshaling those forces, just this one area, marshaling those forces, and then look at what it means to have these CCAs coming from ground launch locations, air launch locations. They're not, we don't want them all to come back in a mass. We want all these multi uh, 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 presentations uh, to the adversary, but they have to be synchronized. They have to be orchestrated in some way. So there's implications for, and I think, of course, uh, the F-35 pilot in this game has to have control. Battle management uh, in, in locales in the battle space has a role. And there's also something back in the central planning place, command and control, what we refer to as a chaos today. Things have to change. That needs to be analyzed. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add, going back to what Nerd was saying is, I think it's directly proportional to that rheostat that we have between a resilient, reliable command and control, low latency data link capability, all the way over to fully autonomous, policy compliant, yep. lethal yeah. autonomy, right? And, and where you are in, in that, from a technology point of view, will allow you to go from anywhere from direct command and control to mission, you know, to overall mission management. I think optimally, you want to be, you have to be able to run that entire gambit but you want to focus more towards the commander's intent aspect of things to be able to control a large number of, of CCAs by, by a small number of, of manned, yep. uh, either aircraft right or ground control. Right on. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have truly come to the end of this rollout of our latest Mitchell Institute report, uh, the need for collaborative combat aircraft to, for disruptive air warfare. Um, it's now available online at our website, mitchellaerospacepower.org. And uh, thank you again to our authors for an impressive effort. And our thanks and best uh, regards to the team leads, um, Otis, Nerd, and uh, Stutz. Very much appreciated. And to our audience today, from all of us at the Mitchell Institute, have a great air and space power kind of day. <laughs>